Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic. Welcome to the 11 Personnel Podcast, your favorite Rams podcast. I'm your host, Jordan Rodrigue, and with me, as always, my fabulous co-host, Rich Hammond. Rich, how we doing? Well, Jordan, uh, I guess that depends on whether you're a Rams fan or not. Um, I know we're going to talk a lot about this game because uh, it, it's one game, it's one loss, and you never want to put too much on one game, but... I think there's some things we need to talk about, Jordan. I know, I know we're going to have a couple of guests too later on, but uh, there, there's there's some topics to discuss here, aren't there? Yeah, you know, this is going to be, I think, a fun episode. Well, depending on if you're a glass half full or glass half empty person, this will be either a fun episode or you might just want to skip ahead to our fantastic guests. <laughs> um, because we have on this week in our super jam-packed bi-week episodes. Obviously, the Rams are on their bye, so no game on Sunday. We are still bringing you an episode of Love and Personnel, and it's a, sort of a supersized, like, jumbo toilet paper pack, 11 Personnel, <laughs> which is perfect uh, for 2020, apparently. Um, so this this week, we have on Aaron Schatz of Football Outsiders. We love Aaron. He makes us smarter. His website makes us smarter and better at our jobs. He's going to be breaking down some some important RAM statistics and notes, and one that, again, depending on whether you're a glass half empty or glass half full person, will either drive you absolutely insane or make you happy. <laughs> Rich, you know the one I'm talking about. Oh, yes, absolutely. Yeah. And we also have Frank Frigo on, and he is the co-founder of Edge Sports. And if you guys haven't heard of Edge Sports yet, oh, my gosh, they are so such a, a fun, smart analytics site, and they're bringing us content every single week, um, trends and decision-making. And we take a deep dive with Frank into the Sean McVay experience, decision-making, play-calling, uh, critical calls, game-winning chance, and it was fascinating. So that's coming up later in the episode. But to start, Uh-oh. and I'm giving you guys a chance to skip ahead at this point because we, of course, have to cover the Rams' loss to the Miami Dolphins, 28-17, to uh, week eight loss that uh, I don't even know where to start, to be honest with you, Rich. Well, I, I think we should start with something that you wrote in, in your column, The Pile, that w- went online uh, Sunday night. And um, it was a little bit deeper in your story, but you said something that really hit me, which is that if I would have told you halfway through the season that one of the Rams' units was struggling and the other one was arguably one of the best in the NFL. And I would have told you that one of them was the offense. One of them was the defense. I don't think we could have gotten five out of a hundred takers to say it would be the offense that was struggling. I am shocked, Jordan. And I, I guess I mean that as much as a compliment to Brandon Staley's defense as I mean it as a slap at Sean McVay's offense. But 
I guess the question is, how did we get here? Yeah, and I think you have to look at it piece by piece because on the one hand, yes, the Rams have a top five defense. There's no, there's no other way to put it. They have a top five defense. If it weren't for the offense gifting other teams points via turnovers, the Rams would, their numbers would be a lot less sort of skewed. But if you look at defensive points allowed specifically, the Rams are still in the top three in scoring. And they also are in many, many areas, a top five or top 10 defense. And to be able to have installed what is actually a really complex scheme, which Ted Wynn and I wrote about over at The Athletic. We did a super deep dive, including um, you know film analysis and breakdown of concepts, scheme, philosophy of Brandon Staley's defense. Thanks to all of you who've checked it out so far. If you haven't, you have to go read it. And I'm not just saying that because I co-wrote it. Ted is fantastic and really did a heck of a job explaining certain things about what we're seeing on Sundays and occasional Monday nights from the Rams defense. So it's complicated and pieces of it had to roll out bit by bit through the first four weeks or so of the season because there was no preseason. There was no spraying ball. There was no real training camp other than installation. And to be able to get to this point with really two weeks of training camp to install a completely new defense, which uses a new language and has incorporated not just the the star players, but also has gotten the role players and the depth guys up to speed as we have seen with some of the injuries. I don't think that could be undersold. Like, I think that's phenomenal. I mean, am I, am I, am I just viewing it through a little bit of a lens because on the other side of the ball, things are imploding a little bit. <laughs> Perhaps. No, I, I think it makes it even more impressive because <laughs> right. you, you look at in the offense, you know, I mean, Again, we're grading on a curve here. It's it's not like the offense is scoring three points a game or something, but it's not it's not what we expected, and and that normally puts even more stress on your defense. Uh, so so you would expect that uh, you know the fact that the Rams' offense isn't isn't up to its par would would have an even more detrimental effect on that defense. But that's not the case. I mean, independent of whatever the offense is doing from week to week. Uh, the defense is is still consistently strong. Yeah, it's so interesting too, and and I already can like see as a vision in front of me what my Twitter mentions will look like after this segment because I I know I'll get one or two people who will be like, well, it's not hard to install a defense with Aaron Donald, Jalen Ramsey, you know, Michael Brockers, but it it still is, guys. <laughs> like it's right. and then and then there's no excuse on the other side of an inherited system that this pretty much entirely entire offense position by position has continuity within they they change some things in terms of protections blocking schemes things like that but the language is the exact same year over year other than you know the calls that change from week to week and standard in football right but the Sean McVay offense has been here for the last several years and they are anemic at times really concerning at times clicking like they should at times, but there's never been a really complete outing that also complements or is complemented by the defense either or. And so when you tell, you know, when you say, well, they have, it's, it's not hard to install a completely new system with like all of these stars. Okay. Well, um, it's still learning a new language in two weeks, (laughs) you know, and, and you can't, 
a lot of it is schematic and you can't hide schematic stuff with just being a really, really good player sometimes with this type of defense. You have to be in the right place in order to be successful. And so I, I still think it's impressive. Um, and and I think on the other side of it, it it is disappointing to see a lack of execution um, from the offense and especially concerning here and there over the last few weeks, but all out maddening yesterday on Sunday against the Miami Dolphins. Yeah, I know Rams fans are, are upset, and I don't blame them. I mean, that, that was just a very bad performance across the board, and I, I thought you covered it well um, in your column. You, you can look at Sean McVay. You can look at Jared Goff, and I think you can point the finger at both of them mm-hmm. and say that uh, it just wasn't there. The, the, the plan wasn't there. The performance wasn't there. The adjustments during the game weren't there. And that's sort of the thing. People get frustrated on Twitter. And it's like, why, you know, why aren't you, why don't you ask them? This is not new. I mean, these are the same types of things that we saw happening last year, even at the very end of 2018. Uh, Even though they made it to the Super Bowl, you started to see some of these things pop up. And it's, it's been covered. It's been written about. It's been asked about time and time again. These are not new things when you talk about some of the tendencies that Sean McVay shows and some of the things that pop up with Jared Goff from time to time. I certainly understand why people get frustrated, but uh, the the problems that they're having are, are not unique to this season. They're not unique to facing the Miami Dolphins or facing a certain type of blitz or anything like that. Jordan, the one thing that that I'm su- surprised about and um, I'll, uh, maybe a little bit of a mea culpa on, on my part is you know, I wrote last year that the Rams should hire an offensive coordinator, mm-hmm. um, having uh, had Sean McVay basically do it himself the entire thing for a year. I kind of thought bringing in somebody would really help, and particularly with the game planning, in particular with those in-game adjustments, I thought would be uh, something that would be very beneficial. Now, I'm not saying this is an indictment of Kevin O'Connell. I don't. I don't know what kind of relationship or communication they have exactly. I don't know what kind of input Sean McVay gets, and I don't know what he listens to. I don't know how he processes that. I have no idea how any of that goes uh, during those 60 minutes that they're on the field. But I guess I just thought that that having a coordinator would kind of ease some of this or improve some of it uh, to where you could make those adjustments. Uh-oh, that Miami defense is is giving us some problems with with a certain look or a certain blitz. Hey, we got to go in and at halftime and make this adjustment. I thought having a coordinator would would help with that, and it, it doesn't to me look like that's happening. So that that's just my takeaway based on you know when when things start to go wrong at the start of a game that'll happen, but then how do you adjust to it? How do you find the things that will allow you to work? within those struggles. And that's something the Rams have struggled with now, really, you know, for the past year, even again, going back to the end of 2018. So little, little surprised, little frustrated there on behalf of Rams fans that, that they don't seem to be figuring that out. Yeah, I think, first of all, great point, but I think it touches on something that I believe should be most disappointing to not just Rams fans, but also to, the collective leader, you know, leadership within that offense in terms of from a, you know, from a coaching standpoint and whoever's in the quarterback's room, you, so you technically, you have three people, three of 
at least two of the three are considered to be among the brighter football minds um, in the NFL. You have three people, your head coach who is calling plays, your offensive coordinator who's working directly with the quarterback, and your quarterback. And you have three people who are seeing, diagnosing, and tasked with responding and adjusting. Three people, not one, not two, three people. And still, the inability to adjust adequately and quickly enough to actually impact the direction and flow of a game is, is I think, stunning to me considering the minds in that room. Because it's not just yesterday, Rich, and you, as you know, it's also when screen passes are getting blown up left and right and you're not adjusting away from them. Well, you're seeing it happen. There's three people who are literally, this is what you see. The quarterback is seeing what's happening in front of him and supposed to be communicating what's happening all around him and in front of him. You've got two other guys in Sean McVay and Kevin O'Connell, at minimum, who are also watching, diagnosing. You've got, you know, uh, passing coordinators. You've got people up in the box who are doing, you know, offensive game planning and, um, you know, you've got people who are eyes on this. At what point have there been maybe even suggestions about adjusting? And I'm curious about what those conversations are like. Is Jared Goff seeing his, you know, seventh cover zero blitz and of, of as many as he had, two were turnovers, one returned for six points for the other team another one in interception, another one in near interception, um, blown up nearly every single time. It's not working. At what point do you go into the headset and say, this is not working. We need to do something else. What are, what are our options on other things to do? And you don't see it in this case until the fourth quarter, and it is much too late at that point. Yeah, and I'm, I, I'm just, I, yeah. I know I'm sounding harsh, Rich, but like <laughs> no. how many voices are in the room talking about what happens in real time and how you can pivot and adjust. And, and at what point are you unable to do that? Is it the quarterback that makes you unable to do that? Or is it simply just continuing to try it because this is what we planned for? It's, it's such a good point, Jordan. And it's not harsh because these are things that have popped up again going back to the end of the 2018 season when there were a couple games there in the regular season where you kind of raised your eyebrows a little bit and went, hmm, you know, that nobody's done that to this Rams offense before. And then obviously the Super Bowl is, is the high profile one. And then it extended over into last year where you kind of went, what's going on here? Like the, the adjustments just aren't there, you know, during during a game and that sort of thing. I think just, just if I could add one more thing onto your great comments there, I would say what's probably even more frustrating from a Rams fan perspective is that it has been there at times. I mean, again, I know yeah. we go back to quality of opponent and say, you know, say what you will again about the NFC East, but there were times early this season, and I'm, I'm sure I even said it on the podcast here, where that Rams offense looked so much better. It, it looked like it, it was in sync. It looked like it had an identity. They were doing different things. They were running the ball more. They were rolling Jared out. They were. It, it looked like an offense that was that was very well designed. That was reactive to what was going on, really dictating the game to the opponent. And and we even saw it 
in the loss to Buffalo. And I know you've made this point multiple times where even though the Rams lost that game, the adjustments that they did make, they were getting they were getting blown out. And, and they had a very good offensive plan in the second half that almost brought them back and almost at least got them to overtime, almost won them the game. Um, so it's not like it's never been there. I, I, I almost think that almost makes it a little more frustrating is that you're talking about people, like you said, Jordan, very smart people uh, who, right. who know how to do this stuff. And I think that's where the frustration comes in um, is because fans know what Sean McVay can do. They know how smart he is. Uh, you know, we've heard great things about Kevin O'Connell. We know what the staff can do. Uh, but the fact that it's not translating to the field and in particular not translating to those adjustments when everybody can see that things just aren't going right. Uh, I don't know what it is. I, I'm, I'm not sure. Not not having been in that position. You know, I, I know there's there's a lot of confidence uh, in, with Sean McVay in, in the things that he does. Um, to, to probably think, hey, you know what, we, we can get through this. We, we, you know, we, we've got the game plan. We've got the people. We can get through this. But I think at some point you just have to take a step back and, and look at it and say, you know what, it's just not working. It's just not our week with this plan. And then you, you've got to do what you can uh, to, to make the most of it. And like you said, Jordan, it happened very late in that game against Miami, but it just happened way too late. Yeah, I, I have two things. One is a little bit more of an editorial comment on my end, and then another that's like a cold, hard statistic that is extremely indicative of of sort of the the disappointment that is, I think, justified in this offensive performance. The first one is a couple weeks ago we were talking with Sean McVay about you know what you know when you script plays versus when you don't script plays. For those who don't know, a play script is basically a rundown on a coordinator sheet, and it usually is like the opening drive. Some teams do it up and through their first three series. Um, Usually you try not to go too long into it. Some coordinators have scripted a whole game. I don't think that's the right way to go, obviously, with all the different types of things defenses can do now. But it's basically you're, you're running down a specific play sheet and you're calling things and checking boxes off as you go, right? Sometimes it really works because it helps your team not think as much and and you can really um, assert your own game plan sometimes if, if it's working correctly. When you have to go off script, um, sometimes it's good because it's it's more variable. Anyway, we were talking with Sean McVay about how the Rams do not script. They don't script their opening drive. They don't script any of it. Okay, I like that kind of football personally. I think that's smarter football. I think it's it's there's the ability to be uh, more fluid. You can cover up different things and window dress and do a lot of different creative things. I don't think that you can be, you know, proud that you don't script your offense and that your players can handle that. I don't think you can be proud of that if you are not showing that you can adjust in a game. And then the other thing that's mind-blowing to me is, okay, so we know the Dolphins, again, very, very good defense. The Rams knew that coming into the game. Great defensive-minded coach in Brian Flores, formerly of the New England Patriots. Yes, that New England Patriots team. <laughs> also, um, you know, brought over his his top pick for a defensive coordinator fantastic defense, right? They knew they had it out for them. And the numbers on this are extremely clear. The Dolphins are pressuring quarterbacks on 36% of their dropbacks, okay? 
they actually pressured Jared Goff 3% less. Yeah. 33% of his dropbacks. They, the numbers were absolutely clear. They knew what level of pressure they were going to be getting and were not prepared. Yep. I, the numbers don't lie. And I, I don't want to simplify it back to, you know, something that I always say, which is run the ball. But uh, again, if you're, if you're looking at that kind of pressure and, and what you might be facing, you, you've, you've got to do different things. I mean, Jared got, what did he throw the ball? 61 times? 61 times. Rich, this is the number 30 rushing defense in the NFL. They are terrible defending the run. Yeah, and terrible. And, they, and the game didn't get. I mean, I know they were down, you know, eighteen. There's still a lot of time left, and and the way that your defense is playing, uh, the defense wasn't going to give up a whole lot more, uh, if if any at all. So it's not like you're in a situation where you think, oh, we're in a shootout now. You know, we're we're going to have to score two touchdowns for every one touchdown that the other team scores. No. Your, your your line was pretty much held on on the defensive side. You just had to get a couple touchdowns on the board. So that's what made it even more. I couldn't believe that number when I looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone. Luckily, with twenty four seven U.S. based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10. Place your first bet on any game and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Thought at the end of the game, that's just, that, that's absurd uh, to, to throw the ball that much. And by the way, it, it should be said, I mean, look, Jared Goff did not have, he had a terrible game. Oh. Like, a terrible. And that, that's not, nobody's going to make any excuses for that. I don't want this to be, misconstrued as, oh, you know, you're just putting it on Sean McVay and, and you know, Jared Goff didn't do anything wrong. No, 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 no. Jared, Jared was terrible uh, bad, in, in that bad, game. Bad. Um, so, you know, and again, I know we all, look, people get frustrated on social media and I understand, but like to, to think that, you know, you're, you're going to put in John Wofford or you're going to make a trade for quarterback. No, no, that's, that's not the answer here, <laughs> folks. Um, Look, Jared, Jared does have limitations. There's no, there's no question about that. Like every quarterback 
save maybe Patrick Mahomes. Patrick Mahomes, not a whole lot of limitations there. But but you know, pretty much every but every other quarterback has some things where you look at and go, aha, that's the that's the weakness that you know you're going to try to exploit. So that's that's known about Jared Goff, and uh, you know he needs to do a better job with that kind of stuff. But look. Jared Goff's limitations now are the same limitations that they were in 2017, the same limitations they were in 2018. And he was pretty good in both of those years. So uh, at some point, you just kind of have to accept, you know, this is what this guy is. And and when that Rams offense is moving, when it's doing what it's supposed to do, Jared is very good within, can be, I should say, very good within that, within that system. So uh, I, I would just caution people. You, you can certainly say terrible game. Uh, probably, ah, I'd have to think back, but probably the worst game I've seen from him since that rookie year, which was just yeah. a dumpster fire. Um, but absolutely a, a terrible, terrible game by Jared Goff. But again, if, if you're looking, if you think changing the quarterback is the answer, I, I'm not sure what to tell you at this point. Yeah, I don't really um, accept that logic or accept that argument into the space to be honest with you <laughs> like I just <laughs> I mean I know you're the same way Rich it's just that's just not how football works it's just not like it, yeah. you have a, a guy who you have deemed as your franchise quarterback and he also has posed his best game of the season and of his and his best game maybe of the last two years right. in in this you know eight game cycle right so pump the brakes everybody the thing that really bothers me, though, is I, I need him to take a sack better. Yeah. Um, yeah. I need him to look to his right, <laughs> right. When, when he's got a crosser um, or someone going in motion, especially when it's uh, he knows he's going to get an all out blitz. And um, I need him to hold on to the football. Yeah. I mean, these are these are 2016 issues. And that's right. why I think a lot of people got so kind of, yeah. you know, what? So- <laughs> There was so much fret yesterday because, wow, I mean, you, you look at it and it did like it did look like a 2016 game, which we had not seen. Well, we hadn't seen it since 2016. And then that's why I think a lot of people were so uh, upset by it. So it just, you know, Jared was off and, and the Dolphins were doing everything that gives Jared problems. And the coaching staff didn't do him a whole lot of favors either. It was two things. And I mentioned this on Twitter and also in my piece, uh, my column on the pile, the pile, which is on the Athletic LA right now. Uh, also, the comment section is lit in there right now, guys, oh by gosh. the way. I mean, it's actually very, it's like, I was I was slacking this to Rich the other day because it's like things are so crazy on social media right now that thing, I actually find myself like really finding solace in our comment section because it's actually a very nice place. And you would like, you don't say that a lot about comment sections. <laughs> I mean, people are pretty cordial to each other and present their ideas and it's like, I hope it stays that way. Let's try to keep it that way because it, it really is like a nice place to just talk about football. Um, right. So anyway, so it, I, I touched on this before. It's a combination of setting your quarterback up to fail, but then also the quarterback inevitably failing because he cannot execute, which yeah. there's no such thing as a double negative turning into a positive in the National Football League. <laughs> So, right. so, and I'm talking specifically about some of these empty sets and those drove me absolutely freaking crazy, Rich. I, I was livid at those and I, I am an unbiased reporter. Like I, I don't have any stake in whether they win or they lose. I just want to cover good stories. Those empty sets made me livid because they were not working for a variety of different reasons. They were allowing a free rusher essentially every single time. 
and it, and and let me get let me just be clear those can work those can work because but you need to have a receiver who's getting off his block so quickly um so quickly that he's in he's in an outlet and you need the quarterback to get the ball out of his hand so quickly that you can basically kill the blitz and then you need that receiver particularly if and the ultimate sign of disrespect for Jared Goff and his his passing ability, especially if they are in cover zero and there is nobody deep. So you beat one guy and it's a touchdown if you're one of these yak receivers that the Rams have. So you can absolutely kill that. The Rams showed early on there that there was no way Jared Goff was going to be executing that. Right. Early on, it was clear that they could not execute that because even if there's an outlet open, he was getting hit before he could get the ball out of his hand. He wasn't like on one of those plays that I just mentioned. He wasn't looking to his right. He uh, should have taken a sack instead, tried to force it and got stripped. Like, you know, just disastrous things. Don't keep running it. Right. Like you, you, You're just offended as a football watcher. It right. has nothing to do with their. And I totally agree. It's like you watch something and you're like, why are you guys banging your heads against the wall? Um, do, doing the definition the of insanity, Rich. <laughs> that is literally the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over again right. and expecting different results. When it's clear, Jared started the game 0 for 3, then went 2 for 8 for 40 yards and an interception. You're yeah. Put the freaking football on the ground. Right. And then that's, I wonder if there's a little bit of, again, there's a lot of confidence. And I wonder if there's an attitude, a little bit of like, hey, we can do this. Maybe we're struggling right now, but we, we can do this. We can make this work. And at some point, you just have to, you just have to, you know, take your mental play sheet or whatever and just rip it up and say, right. you know what, it's not working. And, and I thought uh, part of your, your column, Jordan, had some excellent uh, comments from Michael Brockers. Um, and you know, I, I want to be clear here, but when we start talking about this, Michael Brockers was not criticizing, uh, the Rams, no, wasn't criticizing no, no. anybody, but, but Jordan, what, what, what were those comments? Cause he had some very interesting things to say from a, a defensive lineman standpoint about maybe how, how you attack if, 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 you know, you're being defended that way. Yeah. So Michael Brockers, um, first of all, thank God for Michael Brockers because, <laughs> Um, those post game, I really, and this is incredibly selfish for me to say, but I really, really miss post game locker rooms because that's when you really get into this granular insight and you can have sort of these natural conversations instead of being in a line of zoom boxes and then like raising your hand and then you get cut off before you can ask a follow up. Like it's really, um, I, I, I think that Michael Brockers gets, gets it and gets that it's really difficult to talk football in that space. So he really just gives so much more, right? So Michael Brockers, uh, I asked him specifically, what what did you see in terms of what the Dolphins' front seven were doing that was giving Jared Goff and the Rams so so many problems and and pressuring them so effectively? And he, he basically remarked he has never seen a defense and a defensive front zero pressure an offense that many times. And we saw it again, because they often brought the zero pressure, which is what we were just talking about on those blitzes. We often saw those on those empty sets. Well, if you don't have a running back in the backfield who is keeping the defense accountable for possibly, um, you know, running the football or being a quick outlet for a quarterback, then you immediately know that you can pin your ears back and get after it. 
mm-hmm. especially if you understand because it's happened and you've been gifted this a couple of times that you're going to have a free rusher. So if that guy can get to the quarterback or even get near the quarterback, the entire play is blowing up. So I thought it was really, really interesting. He said that at some, at certain points, it felt like they even had like 11 guys on the line of scrimmage. Again, how little do you respect a downfield passing attack to put what feels like 11 guys? <laughs> I mean, it wasn't, but right. like, you know, it's that's that's the thing. How little do you respect a passing attack to 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 show a defense like that? And then he said it just was it just was crazy to see how often they were doing things like that. And I asked Michael, how do you kill something like that? And he said exactly what we were just talking about, Rich. He just said, um, honestly, I, I don't know because it was so effective, but it but it really takes one or two executed plays to kill a blitz. Right. It really does. One right. or two, then that's a blitz killer. If you can get it to Robert Woods out in the flat or, you know, just on a little dump off and he can go 15 to 20 yards, they're not, they're not cover zeroing. They're not zero pressuring you at that yeah. point yeah. because they have to keep somebody back, at least one or two people, especially knowing that guys like Robert Woods, Cooper Cup, Josh Reynolds, they can run after the catch. Daryl Henderson, work Daryl Henderson in space, God forbid. Yep. You saw late, they, they started adjusting. They worked Cam Akers in space. They got him ISO against a linebacker and then a, you know, a safety, and he beat both of them. And right. that was, you know, one of the best plays that the, the Rams ran all game. And it's just little passes behind the line of scrimmage. It's passes. Um, it's getting a running back in the backfield so you can at least disguise. Because, at, Rich, at certain points, they're, they're like on second and, and two, and they have an empty backfield. Yeah, it's, it's so many times like that. It, it, the answer isn't to get complicated. It's to get more simple. And, you know, just, okay, what can we do? We're not doing, we're not doing much right right now, but what can we do? What, like you you just said, what can we do to, to just back off this blitz a little bit? I mean, anything at all. And yeah, they they do have the personnel to to get this kind of stuff done. I mean, Robert Woods can do that for you. Uh, Daryl Henderson can do that for you and, and just make them back off a little bit, but it just kind of seemed like they were determined until almost the very end. Like, Hey, we're, we're just going to do what we do. And, uh, you know, eventually it'll work. Well, it didn't. And, yeah. and that's, uh, you know, that's why at some point you just have to go, you know what, not working on to plan B or plan C or plan D or whatever it is you need in, in order to, to start moving that ball. So, uh, it, yeah, it's just, I, from that perspective, I absolutely understand the frustration from, from Rams fans. Yeah, and it gets to the point where I've heard this a couple of times around the facility from, you know, from Sean even too. It's like, okay, we, you know, we just were trying to find that one play, that one play. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, okay, that's that's great. That's a great strategy as long as you're not going back to the same setup that had failed you. And even deep into the third quarter, they're trying to break a blitz out of empty formation. Right. And that's and, the thing. It's, yeah. it's we, we can do this. We just we just have to hit one. We're, yes. You know, we're right there. Yeah. But it's like no, it, like, that's that's fine for a while. But at some point, you just have to Johnny Hecker punt that thing uh, away <laughs> and just go. You know what? It's time to do something else. That plan that we thought we had, it's not working. We got to do something else. Yeah. And so then now we get to your favorite topic. I know, Rich, because oh boy, yes, yeah, six sixty-one pass attempts by Jared Goff, um, twenty-nine rushing attempts 
and only 11 in the second half. It, it's and and they were running the ball well too, uh, and and that's the thing. It's it's not like you're you're just you know running into a wall and and Daryl Henderson's not getting those yards or what. Even Malcolm Brown was running the ball well. Uh, you, you have to, and and I understand, and and it's it's a trend. If I could break it down. And go back through every game. I, I feel like it's a trend when they when they don't score on the first drive. You almost feel things get more tense. Like, uh oh, we didn't we didn't score on that drive. You know, now we and we just gave up some points or whatever it might be. Now now we start throwing the ball. We have to we have to get away from from the run. And it's it's not it. You, you have to stay with it, especially again circling back to the fact that you have a great defense. You just you don't have a good defense. You have a great defense right now. Um, so even if things don't go to plan on, on offense on that first drive or even on the second drive, that's okay. You you now have the backup because your, your defense is playing very well. They're not going to give up many points. So you can stay with it. You don't need to, to panic. You don't need to start slinging the ball around. You don't need to start making bad decisions if you're Jared Goff. I mean, just just play to your strengths a little bit. And and it, I know Rams fans who've been watching for a while. Look, Sean McVay does, does so many good things. I don't I don't want to, you know, get sideways on this. I mean, he it's it, he's a brilliant offensive mind, but again, I think that's where people get frustrated is because they see so much of what he can do and and yet some of these things you just look at and you go, "Why? Like why why don't you see it when 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 pretty much everybody else sees it?" But I, I guess that's that's the heat of the moment, right? I mean, that's that's being on the sideline uh, when when the clock is running, and uh, a little bit harder than than sitting on my couch, I'm sure. Yeah, and let's be clear: neither you nor I could do that job. Oh my gosh, no! <laughs> so, I mean, I don't think that Sean McVay is like volunteering to write any articles, but I still think he could do that job better than I could do his job. Yeah, okay? I, I can't so even let's run make a, that clear. I can't even run a, an offense on Madden. So yeah. let, let, so let's make that clear. So, yes. but but really, I think that it's it's a good point. Rich, have you ever seen the movie Step Brothers? Yes. Okay, so you know that scene where, uh, and I don't remember like which one is which, but Will Will Ferrell's like mm-hmm. in the ground, like he's he's he wakes up one night and he's like in a grave in the ground, <laughs> and the other dude is like Dale or whatever his name is is like right. shoveling dirt over him, right. and Will Ferrell's like, "What are you doing?" And the guy goes, "I'm burying you." Okay. Jared Goff is in the ground. Sean McVay has the shovel. <laughs> when you continue yeah. to force your quarterback to pass the ball in that way, and and again, like it's not working. It is not working, and your quarterback is not taking care of the football. Yeah. Put the ball on the ground. Yep. And run, running the football is not the answer to everything, but I also don't think that you can present the normal logic of football, which is, if you are facing a deficit, pass the ball because you need to eat up larger chunks of space in a shorter amount of time. Um, it's not it's not effective to me. You can you could totally buck logic, or that sort of traditionalist. This is what you do when you're in a deficit. You can totally throw that out the window if your quarterback is having this disastrous of a game, and on the co- you know adding to the fact that your running backs are having a great game against the worst rushing defense in the league. And I think that you can't make the argument at this point, while we're in a deficit, so we really had to pass the ball more. You literally cannot make that argument anymore this season if you're the Los Angeles Rams. Because against the Buffalo Bills, Sean McVay basically looked at 
traditionalist methodology of playing in a deficit and was like, okay, flew at the bird and then ran the football and they mounted this comeback. And it was like this cocksure, swaggering, like the entire team fed off of it. Like, all right, screw it. We're just going for it kind of right. mentality. And and that came from running the ball. It didn't come from putting the ball more often into Jared Goff's hands, as you would see sometimes with like gunslinger quarterbacks or whatever. Jared Goff is not a gunslinger quarterback. Okay. Right. So it was like this really, like the entire team, you could feel the vibe even far away watching it through your TV screen. You could feel the vibe. You could feel that they just rallied around that decision and they were just like, all right, heck yeah, we're going to run it down their throats and we're coming back in this football game. And, you know, buck tradition. Right. And I don't know where that guy went. It's a great question um, because you're looking at it even at halftime, 28 to 10. Not a great spot. No question about it. But again, your defense isn't giving up anything. 28 points. Seven of them came on a punt return. Seven of them came on a fumble return. Uh, another one was basically what put at the one yard line and they had to, they had to get all of one yard to get a touchdown. Your defense was not giving up anything. You can come out in the third quarter and say, you know what? You can have that same attitude. We're going to run the ball. We know our defense is going to get stops. We're going to, we're going to assert our authority on this game. And that does so much for you if you can do it. And the Rams were doing it. They were averaging about four and a half yards per run. It's not like they weren't moving the ball on the ground. Um, you can do that. And, And not only does it, help your own offense, help your own guys, you send a, a message to the defense too. Yeah, that's how you back them off. That's how you yeah. start to give them some some doubt. Yeah. And it just wasn't there. I mean, you think an 18-point deficit, oh, you know, uh-oh, got to start throwing the ball around. I, I didn't get that feeling. I, I thought if they came out and, and just had some success, uh, they could get back in the game. Now, ultimately, they did, but it, it obviously wasn't enough. So right. it, it's very frustrating. You can't even, Rich, you can't even make the argument, which would otherwise be valid on, on another roster where like your lead back, Daryl Henderson, who was, was really having a great game. He had like a thigh hip situation happen and he left the game and he didn't return. Right. Well, on this roster, you actually cannot make that argument (laughs) because you have Cam Akers and you have Malcolm Brown and you also have guys in Robert Woods and Cooper Cup who can run on reverses, who can get yards after short catches, who can just do these things behind the line of scrimmage that and get you extra space that you need. Um, on any other roster, you maybe could make that excuse. You cannot make that excuse here. Yeah, and those guys were averaging. Even take Daryl out of the equation. Daryl was great, averaging six yards per carry. The other guys were fine. Malcolm Brown, Malcolm Brown was averaging 4.0 yards per carry. Cam Akers, 3.9. Those guys were moving the ball. And like you said, you can always do stuff with with uh, Woods and Cup. So it, it's not like they were just decimated at running backs. Not like the line uh, had guys missing. I mean, everything was there. And uh, wow, I just, I keep looking at that 61 number. Every time I look at it, it looks like a typo. Uh, I know. Six, six. I, I, I honestly had to refresh Stat Jesus for... By the way, guys, that's actually what, what it's called. Like our media stats that we get, it's called G-S-I-S and it's pronounced Jesus. So yeah. don't think I'm being a weirdo when I'm saying like <laughs> stat Jesus. Really, um, that's what it's called. So I kept refreshing it um, and I was like, this isn't right. I did the same thing with Cooper Cup because what did he have? 21 targets? 21 targets. Yeah. Yeah. Just bonkers. Lot. Yeah. So, you know, that's 
that's where you get lost in in your own head a little bit, I, I think. And um, again, it's not easy. I could, you're right. I, I could never do it. But uh, that's where you have to take a step back during the game and say, is this what we're really doing? Uh, is this was what we're doing really going to help us, you know, win the game? And and I just I don't think you can make that that argument. So, yeah, um, Jordan, before we uh, get to our guests. Oh, no. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> can we- yeah, uh, I know what you're going to ask. Go, go ahead. I'm yeah. bracing myself. Look, I, I am not um, I'm not going to take a victory lap here, but I, I just want to point out to Rams fans that when you get rid of your kicker, um, you're bringing in another unknown. And I think we said this last week, right? You, you, you might not like your kicker. You might think that whatever you can get <laughs> – is going to be better, but you just don't know. And poor Kai Forbath. Things went pretty well at the beginning, right? Like you were kind of, I was pulling for the guy. I'm like, okay, maybe he's going to get through this game. And then, uh, I, you, Jordan, you've you've watched more NFL football th- than I have. I, that's one of the worst field goal attempts I think I've ever seen. I have kind of a funny story. Okay. So back when I first started covering the NFL, like this was like back early 2016 and I was really nervous. And I think I've told this story before where I was just a fish out of water. I had covered college football for a while, but I started covering the NFL and I was sort of parachuting into this team, which with which I had no familiarity in the Carolina Panthers. And to the point where I even spelled Luke Keekley's name wrong the first time I tweeted it out and it was like mortifying, right? Like Luke freaking Keekley. You right. cannot spell that name wrong. Anyway, so it was like just a really, I was just trying so hard and I was working so hard and I like, I didn't even have any furniture and I just had all my game notes all spread out. I looked like a serial killer, like everything spread out <laughs> on my floor in my tiny little studio apartment in Charlotte and like, there was a, I had a dog bed and a mattress, like, and that's it. And it was just, I was working so hard to try to just get everything right. And my first training camp, I was so nervous. And there was a kicking competition uh, between Graham Gano, who is now with the Giants, and Harrison Butker, who, uh, and Panthers fans, if you guys still listen, if you guys listen to this podcast, I'm so sorry to bring this up, but was signed off of the <laughs> Panthers practice squad and became like a great kicker for the Kansas City Chiefs. Um, and then, you know, they went on with Gano, who obviously didn't work out long term. Anyway, so they're in this kicking competition. It's it's high stakes. And Graham Gano keeps hooking it to the left. And one of them was like pretty wide. Like there was maybe, it was maybe like 20 feet wide. Um, so not technically a shank, right? But pretty wide. Right. So I, I had tweeted it out. I said, uh, you know, Graham Gano was 10 for 11 today. The one that he hooked left uh, or, or the one that uh, was wide left was a little bit of a shank off of his foot. Well, this man was on his phone t- on Twitter all the time, came up to me 10 minutes after practice ended, came up to me and very politely and very like with a smile on his face was like, is that what you think a shank is? <laughs> <laughs> and I was so mortified, Rich. I mean, it's kicking is hard and it's hard to uh, evaluate. It's hard to coach, but right. he was, I mean, it was, it was like borderline right on that line of it's right. a shank. Like it was 20 feet wide of the goalpost, but it also, 
it, you know, a shank maybe would have gone like perpendicular, or, right? You know, like right. the, so. Um, so basically, the moral of the story is: I have never, I had, I, I set about like really studying again, uh-huh. and I never again miscategorized a kick or categorized a kick without first being completely sure. Which is all to say, holy crap, Kai Forbath <laughs> shanked the crap out of that football. <laughs> yeah, I don't look. He, he seems like a good guy. I don't. I'm, I'm not. You know, I don't want to ridicule anybody. But oh my goodness, you just thought like this is the moment. This is it. Like he's gonna. You know, he's he had a couple extra points. He hit a short field goal. Like this, he's gonna show it right here. You know that he can. That this is really his job, and it could not have gone any worse. You know, I, I don't yeah. even know. It's like you're going to like propose to somebody, and like you drop the ring in the in the gutter or something. I mean, that's that's what it felt like. Like, oh my goodness. Like, this is the one thing that had to go right for you. And it literally could not have gone any worse. So, yeah. I don't know. We'll, we'll see. I, you know, I, I, I guess anything could happen at this point during the bye week. But, um, you know, I mean, I think it should be said that that, that ended up being a costly, if, if they make that field goal, uh, they, they're in position. You know, they, they potentially could have uh, tied the game. Yeah, but I don't want to. I don't want to also leave out. You know, Gerald Everett should have caught that oh, third yes. down pass. So that makes everything different. So yes, it, it also sets up an unfavorable distance for your kicker to, by missing that catch. And also, I you know I don't think they're going to give up on Kai Forbath after one missed kick, especially if they waited so long on Samuel Sloman. Um, you know, I think that. This is obviously unfortunate. It was like, if it rains, it pours for the Rams on Sunday. Right. And what I think is worse is giving up that touchdown return, that, that uh, punt return for a touchdown in coverage where, like, yeah. the kid, the guy was barely touched. Yeah. And you really, I think, miss guys like Terrell Burgess on your special teams unit in that case, by the way. Um, yeah. And, and I think that was worse. I think Kai Forbath, other than that kick, did what he was supposed to do looked like he had okay height off of his foot, which was a huge concern. Um, you know, hit his little chip shot early on, um, made his PAT. So it was like, oh, you're almost relaxed. You're almost just right. not thinking. You're almost not thinking about the kicker. And then all of a sudden you are. And I think that is Kai Forbath has an unfavorable situation that he's up against because he's dealing with the recency bias of being really frustrated with the kicker that was within the Rams staff. So yeah. I think the sort of leash, quote unquote, is like tenser because you're already like, okay, you're the second guy, right? So right. for for Kai, I hope that he continues to succeed because obviously this is a dream job for him because he's an L.A. native and he loves his commute to work from West Hollywood every morning. Like he he is really hoping to settle here after being such a journeyman for so long and had worked really, really hard to get more distance on his kickoffs, et cetera, et cetera. So I think, you know, as a human being, I hope the best for him. Um, Really just, I think, a really frustrating moment for him and for the rest of the team yesterday. Yeah, and I think there'll be a little bit of slack there because, I mean, it it is – it's not a super, super long kick, but, I mean, that's his first real – kick like that in an NFL game all year. I mean, he's been on a practice squad all year. So you send a guy out there for, what was it, a 48-yarder, I think. And it's a little bit different than probably if you've had already had six games, uh, you know, kicking some pretty decent-sized field goals out there. I mean, he was really coming in a little bit cold, at least at that distance, uh, in in a live game. So 
probably get a little bit of slack there. But again, you're right. It's just like it's just another thing on on top of uh, the struggles that they that they already had. So we'll uh, we'll monitor where that goes. But uh, Jordan, should we uh, should we bring in uh, one of our special guests? Yeah. So I kind of touched on this early. So because we're at the bye week, we really wanted to kind of give a conclusive report of where we think the Rams are right now. And so you can catch Rich and I's opinions and thoughts and analysis in our piece this coming out this week on theathletic.com slash Los Angeles. And we're really excited to kind of just go down the roster and and talk to you guys about what where we think every position is at. And 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 also very importantly, as you heard, you know, a lot of at the beginning of this podcast, where you th- we think Sean McVay is at. Obviously, we wanted to be more educated in doing that. So, of course, we brought on Football Outsiders' own Aaron Schatz. We are so thrilled um, for sort of this midway point Rams evaluation that we're going to be doing for you guys. We're so thrilled to have on Football Outsiders' Aaron Schatz again. He was so great at previewing the Rams for us, um, helped us be a lot more educated as as does the Football Outsiders Almanac. If you guys don't have a membership to Football Outsiders yet, you should go get a subscription. Wow, they are amazing. Aaron, how are you doing today? Good. Thank you for the kind words. Well, we love having you on because we learn so much every time you're here. No pressure or anything. (laughs) (laughs) But we're so thrilled to have you on today. Um, So obviously, we are just sort of generally evaluating where the Rams and and I think we maybe want to stay offensively focused today. Sean McVay, what are, what are some of the qualities you're noticing from him throughout the course of, of these um, first eight games so far? They can be numbers, quantitative, they can be qualitative, um, whatever you think. And then Rich and I will um, chime in to tell you how right you are. And very unlikely disagree with you, but probably tell you how right you are. (laughs) Well, I think uh, what I said before the season was that people were sort of projecting the Rams like they forgot that Sean McVay is still really good at designing offenses. And Mm -hmm. I think what we've discovered in the first part of the season is that, hey, Sean McVay is still really good at designing offenses. And um, from what I've seen, they're using more play action than ever before and more motion than ever before. It's just like... It's like the Rams offense of the last couple of years, only there's even more of it. Mm-hmm. And um, and obviously it's worked out. They're playing a lot better than they did a year ago. So, I mean, I think you got to give McVay props for coaching this team up. Yeah, let's talk about play action and motion because I think that's really a sort of a sexy topic right now around the league. I think you're seeing more than more than usual, more teams doing not just pre-snap but at-snap motion and so I'm wondering if you could break down the advantages of doing those things um, in, in you know, incorporating those things in your offense. Yeah, I mean, unfortunately, I don't have numbers in front of me, but it's all about, you know, confusing the defense, right? Mm-hmm. Play action fake confuses the defense because they think there's kind of run coming and instead it's a pass. Motion confuses the defense because, you know, you've got guys moving at the snap, so defenses have to adjust like very suddenly right before the snap. So uh, you take advantage of them, maybe not adjusting what they were going to do to what you were going to do. Like maybe they, they set up because you're set up in a certain way. And then all of a sudden you're set up in a different way and they haven't adjusted to that. So, you know, that's just the basic idea. 
Aaron, we we talked about you know we've we've talked about adjustments back and forth, and I, I think a lot of the things that you heard when people criticized the Rams last year were oh people figured out Sean McVay. You, you heard that a lot. Um, from your experience, it, it, see, it seems like he's getting back to kind of what made things work for him in 2017 and 2018. And like you said, with with some added wrinkles. How, how common is that, you know, when, when you see a coach try to put in their system and, uh, you know, maybe some things get figured out and you have to adjust back and forth? Is there usually a lot of movement from year to year? Or once you see a coach, a play caller, et cetera, um, get his system kind of in place, does it usually get locked in? Or, or, or is there some of this kind of movement, adjustments back and forth, that sort of thing? I think the NFL just has a lot of adjustment back and forth. I mean, there's a couple reasons for that. One is because it's just a constantly moving chess game where everybody is adjusting to everybody else. And the other mm-hmm. is because it's a small sample size. And so there's some randomness. Like there probably was a little bit of random variation to the fact that the Rams weren't as good last year. And, you know, that was bound to, you know, the variability was bound to go the other way at some point, And now it's kind of going the other way. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. When you see some of the things that Sean McVay does and in terms of those variables either before or at the snap, um, this is maybe an oversimplistic question, Aaron, but do those things just, do those things ever, you know, get old? Do they ever peter out? Like, I think kind of, you know, to Rich's point, like as teams start to adjust, what are some variables that could then sort of segue off of those things or is it or is it just pretty much because it's working and it's it's very difficult to defend and it's very difficult to key in on from a defense do you just kind of ride that wave or or where do you think some of the innovation can happen off of what they're doing right now yeah man play action bootlegs have not stopped working (laughs) yet i mean you know the, the day may come where defense figures out how to make it so those plays are not more efficient than you know standard plays but Whatever that day is, it hasn't come yet. So, I mean, just watching Monday night's game, right? Right. Uh, you know, I don't watch the Rams every week, but I certainly watched mm-hmm. them this week. And it was a lot of motion and a lot of play action and a lot of just getting golf to the point where there was one clear open receiver and that was his guy. Aaron, what do you think about the Rams' uh, run game? That's that's a huge topic of conversation uh, among the fan base because they've got three guys here and they're, it seems like they're still trying to – sorted out their their skill sets are a little bit different um i don't want to draw a straight line comparison but i mean the 49ers obviously had some success rotating their guys last year uh you know using them in different kind of spots what does it what does it take to make that work and in general is that advisable are there any are there any analytics or stats to back up whether or not uh, it is a good idea to kind of have that rotation as opposed to maybe committing uh, to one guy for the bulk of it I mean, I've always been a fan of a rotation because if you get an mm-hmm. injury, it means you're not going to some scrub, you know, necessarily. You've got guys that are already in the system and practiced. And But I have to say that more and more as I get older, I fall into the, into the category of people who believe that running backs generally don't matter. That for the <laughs> most part, running backs are – are mostly the same, that the difference between good running backs and average running backs is very small, that the success of a running game has much more to do with things like the scheme and the offensive line. 
And I think that's definitely true in the Rams case, uh, and especially the scheme. Um, if you mm-hmm. look at the ESPN pass block uh, and run block win rates, like their run block win rate is very average, but they're number one in our adjusted line yards stat, which shows sort of the consistency of getting runs closer to the line of scrimmage. You know, that they get like four yards, five yards, six yards on a very consistent basis. And I think a lot of that has to do with the the scheme. You know, they work to get these uh, lighter boxes and then they run against them and they're going to have more success. That's so interesting, too, to to hear about. I'm wondering if you can expand a little bit on how you guys measure um, measure that, first of all. And then as you see the Rams trend toward that direction, what types of things, and I know, you know, we, we're the ones who are watching them every week. Um, but just at a glance, what types of things in terms of scheme is making them, do you think so, so successful in that measurement? I mean, a big part of it is the fact that they use so much 11 personnel thinking Mm -hmm. about, you know, the name of the podcast, right. As they force (laughs) defenses to play nickel and dime against them. Uh, and that leaves open spaces for the running backs. Um, uh, the fact that teams are so scared of the play-action pass means uh, that they can't necessarily commit against the run as much as they'd like to because they always have to be worried that, that what looks like a run is actually going to be a pass. Um, I mean, those are just a couple of things. The motion also, the jet sweep motion. You know, there's mm-hmm. a runner going the other way while you're, the running back is going right. And some Robert Woods is going left, and you've got to – committed defender because what if Robert Woods has the ball and, and you know those things all open up space for the running backs Aaron when when you look at what the Rams have done I mean I think a lot of people around the league and and even a lot of Rams fans say well yeah you know the win totals fine but they really haven't played anybody I mean they've they played the NFC East uh, and and took a tour through there I mean when when you uh, I, I'll follow Jordan in saying maybe an oversimplistic question but but when you when you look at some of these things the the analytics and and you know some of the numbers that that you think um, are, are important how how should we is there a curve to grade on there in in terms of the the quality of the opponent or uh, is this just strictly kind of kind of production based oh yeah you've got a grade on a curve based on the quality of the opponent and there's no question the rams have faced an easy schedule so far mm-hmm. uh, but even after we adjust for the easy schedule that they've played so far they're seventh in our numbers okay so like if we didn't adjust for schedule they'd be fifth so we're adjusting for schedule, but it doesn't matter that they've played an easy schedule. Like they've dominated that easy schedule more than some of the other teams who've played against those same easy opponents. I think that's so interesting to consider because I think that's the number one tweak when you every single every single week when you are you know when you're talking about the Rams or you're presenting where they're at in terms of rankings, et cetera, et cetera. You always get the people who are like, "Well, they haven't played anybody yet," right? So um, I'm, I'm actually curious about sort of the inception of those statistics. I know you are the creator, right, of, of all of these wonderful things that we see on Football Outsiders. So I'm wondering, how did you guys go about creating that measurement? And, and obviously there was a need for it because, again, every week you get people saying, okay, well, how good are they really? Are they just good because they haven't played anybody or are they good because – um, you know, they're actually good. And and I think as people were talking about the Rams, especially heading into that Monday night football game, 
there was like this assumption that they were maybe fraudulent in some ways or that the bears were fraudulent in some ways. And so the narrative was which team will expose the other in a sense. Yeah, and the bears also had the same thing going on where they had a bunch of close wins against poor opponents. The way that we do this is that we look at uh, the play-by-play breakdown. We look at every single play. So we don't get fooled by just the binary of wins and losses, but we look at a team's total performance. And then we adjust based on the total performances of all the teams that they've played so far this year. And that's where we get our final numbers. And I've been doing this for 17 years. When I started, you know, now there's this robust community of people doing analytics on mm-hmm. on Twitter and adjusting for opponents and all these other things. When I started, there was no robust community of people doing analytics and there was no Twitter. It mm-hmm. was just me in my living room with a computer screwing around with numbers. So, uh, I mean, I can't tell you where I, you know, originally got the brainstorm of, oh, I really should adjust for opponents, but I've been doing it since I started Mm -hmm. back in 2002. Mm -hmm. Um, Realizing that teams in the NFL play different schedules. Even by the end of the season, there can be big differences in the schedule that a team plays, but halfway through the season, there's even bigger differences because the fact is that the Rams have played the easier part of their schedule for the most part and the harder Mm -hmm. part of their schedule is coming up that's it you you led right into what i was going to ask you Aaron, because now coming out of the uh the the break here uh the nfc west starts to to circle back around for the rams uh seattle uh, a game against tampa the following week and then uh, san francisco and, and arizona i think we came into this year a lot of people did assuming that that was going to be the top division in football so far the, the 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 wins and losses bear that out uh what are what are you guys seeing when, when you analyze that division and, and do you have it i'm not going to ask you for a prediction who's going to win the division but do you have any uh, maybe insight or thoughts into what record it might take to to win that division this year i will say that all four teams in the nfc west have a harder schedule coming up than the schedule they've played so far uh, particularly the Rams and the 49ers. Things get much harder going forward. Seattle, not as much. Uh, I can't tell you. I'd have to run some simulation queries and whatever to say, like, oh, this is the record that it's going to take to win the NFC West. But my guess is it's going to take at least 12 wins. Wow. And it's 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 like the – I mean, this, this is so cliche, but it is like the Wild West out here with because they, they all do seem to cannibalize each other down the stretch in terms of, of where the division is. Um, Aaron, I, I think we would be remiss if we didn't ask you about Jared Goff here because, um, you know, obvi- I'm on Football Outsiders right now and I'm looking at his DVOA, uh, which is at 10.6%. I'm looking at his DYAR. Um, first and foremost, could you – possibly, you know, take the listeners through how you guys are are measuring quarterbacks. And has Jared Goff been at expectations for you guys? Has he been, um, or for you specifically, has he, have, has he showed any facets in which he has exceeded maybe what the, the qualities were assumed about him coming in? Sure. So I will say that we're measuring quarterbacks by looking at all of their plays, and that Mm -hmm. includes sacks. But we are not doing what some other analytics companies now do, where they chart certain things in games to try to separate a quarterback from his receivers, separate a quarterback from his blocking, 
Uh, our numbers don't do that. So when you're looking at Goff's rating, you're looking at sort of the rating for the entire Rams passing attack mm-hmm. uh, as much as for just Goff himself. But I think this is about what we expected. He's 13th in the league in passing DVOA, which is, I think, about what we expected. He's a little bit above average. I mean, the running game is really powering things mm-hmm. for the Rams. They're our number one team uh, running the ball. But Goff has been, I mean, we expected some rebound from the down season last year, and I think we've gotten some rebound from the down season last year. It's so interesting, too, because Jared Goff is hardly ever going to surprise you, I think. Not not just for the better, but also for the worse. That's just sort of seems to be um, who Jared Goff is. And um, this the, the, the measurables that we're talking about certainly quantify that. Is this... Sustain is is where they're at, and particularly in the run game, is it sustainable through the the latter part of the season based on what you're looking at down the stretch for them, um, or do you think you know they, they they might struggle a little bit down the stretch against some of these opponents? Yeah, it's going to get harder. I mean, in mm-hmm. our numbers that are adjusted for opponent, yeah, it's 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 easy to imagine that they continue to be about as good, but it won't look as good because the schedule is a lot harder. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, Tampa Bay, we have blowing the whole league away right now. And Seattle, San Francisco, and Arizona are all in our top 11. So that schedule, you know, yeah, it has the Jets on it. and The Patriots are playing very well right now. But for the most part, they're going to play some hard teams in the second half of the schedule. Aaron, overall, this is, again, we're oversimplifying these, this question, but wh- where are the Rams in terms of, expectations and then where do they need to be um you know in the latter third particularly as they start meeting these NFC West opponents twice and specifically offensively because obviously obviously they need to sustain the types of things that are working well for them but specifically in in areas to improve or even get you know or to get better at as they especially as they try to key in on some of the vulnerable spots on these opponents coming up. Where do they need to really thrive and really shine? They need to improve on third downs. Right yeah. now in our offensive DVOA, they are number one in the league on first downs, but they are number 23 in the league on third downs. Mm-hmm. So they need to improve on third downs. Listen, the, the best way to improve on third downs is to do what they're already doing, which is to avoid having third downs altogether, what I would call a CFL mindset that you always want to get to a new set of downs before you even get to third down. But when they get to third down, they're having some problems and they need to improve on that. Aaron, thank you so much for sharing some of this insight with us today. Um, I think Rich and I just are so fascinated by not just the numbers that we see and then the qualitative areas um, in which we can help better understand and evaluate what's happening with the Rams, but also in the process of it. And, you know, you've been, I know this, you've been doing this so long, but I'm wondering overall trends that you might be seeing um, this year. And and I don't know if it could be changing because of the the unique nature of the environment in which games are being played right now, or, um, or any sort of trends that you're seeing offensively across the league. Um, what what you're noticing so far about halfway through? Yeah, the the offenses are just way over the defenses right now, and it's been mm-hmm. that way for years. But this year, even more than other years, like offenses are just dominating defenses. Like we've never seen a year that was this offensive 
defensively minded in the NFL. Whether that continues going forward, I mean, you know, weather will will play a little bit of a role in that becoming not quite as as big a deal as we go forward in a lot part of the country. But um, you know, even accounting for that, whether that continues or whether that's COVID related, and as teams have gotten more practice, the defenses get a better idea of what they're doing. I, I really don't know. Well, it's it's going to be a fascinating run here uh, for the uh, for the NFC West title, and I want to thank Aaron Schatz for. For being with us, Football Outsiders, you can't find a better resource. Uh, You can see what you're seeing on the field during the games, but if you really want to understand what's happening, how this Rams offense is evolving, how it's going to fit in when some of these games down the stretch that are going to determine whether or not they're an NFC West champion, whether or not they're a playoff team, whether or not they're sweating it down the stretch, um, Aaron and his team have everything that you need. So, Aaron... Thanks so much for taking the time again, and and I'm sure we'll catch up again and, and talk more Rams down the road. All right. Thanks, guys. Thanks for having me on. Good luck with the rest of the season. Man, I just, I know I say this all the time and probably laughably much, so much at this point, but I just always feel so much smarter whenever we have Aaron on and whenever we talk to Aaron. So make sure you guys go check out all of the Rams statistics over at Football Outsiders right now. But we weren't done, Rich. We also got some Great insight um, from, I think, a, an avenue of football that needs to be discussed more, but also needs to be rationally discussed more, right? That's right. Yeah, I really enjoy uh, bringing on Frank Frigo from Edge Sports, edjsports.com. They do some awesome work there. We're going to be talking about the NFL, of course, but uh, across the board, college football, MLB, NHL, NBA, college sports. I mean, they, they do it all there and breaking down some of the numbers and uh, some of the decisions that the coaches make to really fascinating. You can debate these kind of things. Should they have done this? Should they have gone for that? And they're, they're kind of good, you know, sports talk debates or whatever. But but Frank's folks really, really dig into it and see what makes sense, what the calls should have been. And uh, they do a lot of great work with the teams. And, and this is the type of information that's really, really becoming more relevant and, and better used now around the league. So really excited to talk to Frank. Today, we have on Frank Frigo, who is a co-founder of Edge Sports, an analytic software company that basically tells you everything you need to know about football, analytical trends. Um, they have these really great measurables called game-winning chance and crucial call. And we're going to get into those in a minute. But Frank, how are you doing? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much for being on with us. Um, I'm just fascinated by not only your background, but but this company in general. How did you get started and, and enter the world of, of sports data and analytics and, and what led to the co-founding of, of Edge for you? Yeah, so it's, it's kind of a, a bit of a different path. So um, I was in uh, the commodity trading world and the energy trading world for about 20 years. Um, but I uh, have a sort of a side passion of being a professional backgammon player. So I've traveled to international tournaments and um, we uh, saw there's been a revolution of how machines, you know, neural nets have basically dominated humans in games of skill. So we've seen mm-hmm. you know, really all the major games. This has taken place over the last, you know, decade or so. Um so uh, one of the co-founders and I, Chuck Bauer, who's a cosmic ray physicist or was a cosmic ray physicist at Indiana University, he's also a backgammon player, 
we had some ideas that we were kicking around about lessons that were learned in the way the machines were dominating these other skill-based games and whether some of those could be applied to professional sports. And football, believe it or not, has a lot of similarities to the way backgammon is modeled, which might sound really strange, but it's true. You basically have these sort of discrete points in the game where the variables set up and you're focused on maximizing win probability. Mm -hmm. So we had a hypothesis that coaches um, were risk averse and were letting that cloud their judgment in terms of optimizing win probability. And we set out to build a simulation model to test that. We thought they weren't doing a very good job after we built the first version of the model. We realized they were actually worse at it than we thought. So Chuck and I were very passionate about this and we set out to talk to general managers and head coaches and eventually the sports media. And I came from a commodity world where um, if you have an idea to improve decision-making that should be profitable, you know, you stand on the table and make some noise. And I very quickly realized that the NFL culture was a bit different than the culture that I had previously come from. Right. Yes. <laughs> These were new ideas. These were counterintuitive ideas. So it really, it was a bit of a challenge to to uh, to get in front of these folks and explain some of these ideas, but that was really sort of the birth of Edge. So we 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 set out to build this football model. We ended up doing consulting for the media. We've along the way done consulting in the sports betting industry, which is now obviously blossoming in the U.S. Um, and it got us into a whole other host of ideas around how do you use data, kind of take a game based approach to solving problems and supporting decisions by um, you know, being aware of the biases and the pitfalls of the decision process and mm -hmm. really focusing on um, the proper objectives. So, you know, one thing that we learned early on in football is that judgment gets clouded, like I said, by risk aversion, but it also gets clouded by these the, the sort of conventional wisdom of statistics of, you know, you have to get something out of a, out of a possession. Mm -hmm. So coaches are more likely to you know, want to take field goals in situations because they feel like they have to be rewarded for something for the for a long drive. Whereas if you're looking at a win probability, or we refer to it as GWC, game winning chance is the primary metric, that changes everything. And that's what we learned from the way other games were modeled. I mean, mm -hmm. successful programming that's taken place in games like Go and chess and now even poker that's really was the distinction is that the machine will focus on a very specific objective. It doesn't get emotional and it doesn't care if the idea is counterintuitive. So we took a lot of those lessons into the football space, but you know, it was a bit of an eye opener with the culture, let's just say, but anyway, that, yeah. was, that, was, that was basically <laughs> the birth of, uh, of kind of how edge came about. And then, you know, we've gotten into a whole other host of applications along the way. Yeah, that's what I was gonna say. It's it's obviously branched out, and and you cover every sport, uh, pro and college football, basketball, and who who do you kind of see as your uh, target audience? I, I don't know if you have one. It, it might be pretty wide ranging based on on you know what's available uh, on your website. 
uh, which is edgesports, edjsports.com, seems like it should be it could be uh, very applicable for uh, for gamblers, uh, for people who are interested in point spreads and things like that. But there's also such deep analysis uh, just for fans who might not be interested in betting in, in on games at all. Uh, when you when you model this stuff, who who are you kind of targeting, or or is it just kind of a wide uh, uh, attempt to to attract all kinds of fans? Well, it, yeah, it has evolved a little bit. So certainly there's the more sophisticated sports fan. There's folk like the, the, mm-hmm. the community at Football Outsiders, right? These are people that are really into sports just because they're passionate about it and they want to look deeper and understand the game. There's a lot of folks now that watch sports, you know, with in, in a second screen experience. They want other data to kind of enhance their their viewing pleasure. But but certainly now there has been a big push for us, in addition to traditionally talking to the coaches, and we still do quite a bit of work in the media, but really moving into the consumer space. With the advent of sports betting getting legalized and opening up in the US now, there's no doubt that there is there is a real craving for insightful content that sports bettors can use. And we've been very careful to not position ourselves as a tout service where we say, oh, you know, here's our gold line pick of the week and our blue line pick of the week, right? We, we're more about how do we create, how do we take analytics, which has become such a buzzword, but make it very digestible to the consumer. So if you're a sports better, if you're a fantasy player, if you are just somebody who really wants to look deeper at the game, we like to, you know, you can obviously go very deep on some of our content, but we, we try to, um, crafted in a way that it's just easy to sort of get some key takeaways. You know, mm-hmm. what what did that roster change mean? What did that critical decision in the game, how did it actually impact the outcome of the game? Who are the good decision makers as coaches? Um, you know, those kinds of things that obviously sports betters are, you know, very interested in. And that's a that's a that's an increasing audience. So we certainly are speaking to them. You know what is so interesting to me, Frank, and I'm wondering if you have caught this and I, I kind of noted it a little bit when you talked about, you know, introducing this to certain sports cultures and, you know, NFL offices obviously are notoriously like super paranoid and extraordinarily uh, hesitant sometimes and, and clunky sometimes in different facets of the way that they not only process, but, but share and, and analyze data and even to the point where when the NFL had made this wide pool of of data available to every single team, only like four teams actually used it um, in terms of a deeper study on, on their own rosters and their own decision making in their own teams. And it kind of trickles out, I think, sometimes into analytics being such a, I think, a misunderstood word at times. And you see it even this past week um, in, in the World Series when the Dodgers won the World Series and everybody's blaming analytics on uh, Kevin Cash's decision to pull Blake Snell, the right. the Tampa Bay pitcher. And then everybody's like, this is, you know, this is why you don't use analytics. But it's not really that it, it's not polarizing in that way or it shouldn't be because it's really um, a tool and not, and not a crutch. And I'm wondering what sort of uh, not maybe stigma is the wrong word, but but what sort of adjectives and and sort of culture surrounding analytics in general you've seen develop over the last couple of years? Yeah. I mean, you bring up a really good point. I mean, one of the first things when we go in and consult with the team is we, we really try to convey that we're not here to be some robotic coaching replacement. Right. We, we look at a lot of data. We look at, you know, very objective sort of defensible um, metrics that 
guide decisions. Now, there could be a given fourth down decision where it's just really, really clear. Like we've stress tested it. You know, what we would tell our coaches, you know, in this situation, you've got to have some really compelling evidence to, to overturn the model's recommendation. But there's other instances where the decisions are close and, and we want to respect the artistry of the game. I mean, there's all, you know, we make, our models are based on the best available assumptions going into the game about the comparative strengths and weaknesses of the team. And then we feed those into our simulations and we say, okay, play A versus play B would win, you know, X percent more mm -hmm. on average. But there's always new observations, right? So in a situation where they're on the fence with the decision, we're leaning very hard in one direction and that should tip them. But there could be other cases where, you know, it, it's coach's discretion. It's not a, as clear. And I think that's the important way that analytics has to be, has to be thought about in that, you know, it's a decision support tool. There's always going to be new information that isn't being captured, right? Like, you know, the coach is going to be more aware of a, a key players, you know, whether their head is in the game that day or not, right? They're going to be more aware of what they're seeing in terms of certain interactions on the line of scrimmage during the course of the game. So those are all things that have to be factored in. But, you know, again, something we've learned from other games is that what a machine that can process a lot of data and, and focus on a very specific metric like win probability mm -hmm. is at a very, very distinct advantage. <laughs> and it's been proven time and time again. So, you know, anytime you're the, anytime there's a new technology in town, people will try to drive a wedge through, you know, well, you know, you can't perfectly account for, you know, the moisture on the grass and the wind direction, <laughs> and whether that guy's having a good day or bad day. And my response to that is you're right. We can't, and you probably can't do it as well as you think either. We are at least having a very objective criteria for how we're processing the information that is available. And it's, it's worth listening to. Mm -hmm. Frank, it, it sounds a, a lot like um, some of the things Sean McVeigh has said, and, and it's in Jordan's uh, mailbag, uh, most recent mailbag on The Athletic, where he talked about um, how you balance these sort of things. Yes, you, you absolutely do pay attention um, to the trends, to the numbers and that sort of thing, and you, and you balance it. Uh, with your own experience as a head coach, maybe similar situations that you've had in the past, maybe things that did work out that didn't work out, uh, knowing where your team is at at that particular moment, either emotionally or physically, uh, that sort of thing. I, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but it, it kind of sounds like uh, it sounds like maybe that's the right way to approach it, you know, to use it as a guide and then to uh, to see how you can apply it to some some real world situations. And and if, if you would agree or disagree with that. And, and also, do you see anything particular uh, with, with Sean McVay? Have you have you watched the Rams uh, in, in any kind of depth to see how some of these things might might apply to them? Yeah, sure. We, we have looked at McVay. So I'll, I'll kind of touch on the on the first point. So a lot of what we provide in our analysis, because you can't run a simulation. So even with our clients, they can't process information live during the game and run a simulation, but we can provide some guidebooks of, of given situations. So for instance, we might say based on a particular game state, a particular matchup that you have to, in order for it to be a profitable action, you would go for a two PAT if you think your success rate is above, and I'm throwing out a number, 55%, right? Mm -hmm. 
So we know that, you know, there's a lot of data out there suggesting that historically teams might be around 47% to convert a two PAT, but we're not necessarily saying to the coach, do it or don't do it. We're saying that based on the game state, based on all the available information, the risk and reward of how win probability is being traded in this situation based on the sort of the binary outcome that we can tell you that you would need to, you would need to be at this level of success rate to justify the action. Now it's on them as a coach to say, am I better than an average team? Are we seeing something today to indicate that we would have higher success rates? If they don't feel like there's a really compelling argument that they should be performing better than the historical averages, then they probably ought to listen to the model. I mean, you know, if we're saying it's 55%, you would want to have a really strong case that you think you could, you know, be north of that. So that's the kind of thing we do. I mean, we use the analytics to provide guidelines for the team. And we can also come up with the cost of suboptimal decisions. And I think that's really important because, um, you know, when you talked earlier about analytics, you know, the term sort of being widely used, there's oftentimes analysts at teams, they really focus on some minutia and they're missing like the really chunky stuff, right? Like fourth mm-hmm. down, we, and I'm going to talk about a McVeigh decision in game one, in, in the first game of the season, we see these double digit GWC errors on fourth downs. You don't see those on PATs. The only time you would get those on a PAT if you, if you blew a real obvious one, but in the fourth down decision, there's really complex ones, very counterintuitive ones that have huge amounts of equity at stake. And that's why we, we pay so much attention to those. Um, but you know, we, we do try to give a criteria to the coaches and be respectful of their awareness of their team and their awareness of what's going on that day. But, 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 you know, with the warning that unless you really feel like, you know, there's a strong reason to overturn the model's recommendation, you're probably better off going with it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so as far as McVeigh, he's been, he's been interesting. Um, so one of the things that we've come to realize in our analysis, on, particularly on fourth down decisions, is that teams with very powerful offenses, particularly very powerful rushing offenses, uh, can be held to a different criteria in terms of putting themselves in situations where we would suggest more aggressive actions. So for instance, like Baltimore last year, we graded um, John Harbaugh very, very favorably because they were put in so many situations where the model was saying it was profitable to be more aggressive, even in their own territory in some cases. Um, And they not only had a very low error rate, but they also were a super high performing offensive team. So that mm-hmm. they, were, they were meeting, like they were checking all the boxes of meeting a, a coaching criteria. Now McVeigh, on the other hand, has had some pretty strong rushing offenses. You know, I think we've got them rated pretty high in our, Aaron might've talked to you about this already, you know, rated pretty high. So they also put themselves in, in, in situations that we might find more often to be the model will recommend more aggressive goes as being very valuable. Um, I think he was missing the mark in prior seasons. He seems to be doing better this year. The, the one that jumped out to me and somebody shared this with me right before I got on the call with you to, to make sure to talk about was um, I'm looking at this here. It, they had a, in the opening game of the season, they had a fourth and one on their own 49 yard line leading 20 to 17 and, and punted the ball. 
Oh, yes. I have that pulled up as well. <laughs> yeah. so that, according to our model, on average, that gives up 18.5% GWC. So that is like, that's really that's significant. Yeah. So basically, if you have one error like that um, per game in a regular season, that, that's the equivalent of giving up what? I think something close to three games. Um, so that's, that's a really, really egregious error. So, you know, you kind of look at that situation and say, well, well what are they thinking about there? It's, it's the fourth quarter. There's two minutes, 35 left. They have the lead. So conventional wisdom is you have the lead. You're in a position to pin your opponent deep, you know, don't give them a win at midfield and now have the ball with whatever, you know, I think one timeout to, to be able to, you know, win the game. So it's a very volatile, highly leveraged situation, but the model does not care about the leverage. The model does not care about the post-game press conference when, you know, <laughs> some percent of the time you flunk and you look really bad and you got to explain it to everybody. It's simply simulating out all of these different iterations, these distributions of outcomes and saying, okay, on average, which is producing more wins. So in that case, you're talking about 18%, which is one of the highest that we ever see. We did, we have seen them um, go north of uh, 20 in, in some instances. There, there have been some of those. And, and interestingly enough, they tend to be late game fourth and ones, and they often are times when teams have leads because the leverage of converting that is, is so valuable of retaining possession even though mm -hmm. when you don't, you look really bad. So in that situation, an NFL team on average at midfield in a fourth and one would probably be expected to convert that somewhere around 70% of the time. You could argue that the Rams might be a bit higher than that. So the model in its simulation is, is looking at those successes, looking at all of the configurations of the timeouts and the clock, and then it's looking at the failures as well and how those instances play out. And it's suggesting that it's just really, really clear they should be going for this. The other thing I want to add to this, and it's, a, and it's an extra piece of analysis that we do, is inevitably, you, you could imagine if I was talking to the Rams, and I do talk with them periodically about these sort of things, um, they might come back and say, well, you know, there were things we were observing on the field, sort of like I was talking about earlier, that mm -hmm. might have shaped that decision. So the really cool thing that we can do with our model, and this is to me, this is the most valuable part of it is we can adjust assumptions for counter arguments. So if they came back and said to me, you know, we just couldn't move the ball that at that moment or their defense was playing out of their minds or whatever, I can go back and adjust the assumptions. So I could go back and I could make, you know, make them the worst offensive rushing team in the NFL and their opponent, the best rushing defense in the NFL. Hmm. And I can rerun the simulation. And that was the most eye-opening thing that we learned from this modeling process is that in these cases, even when you really stretch the assumptions, even way beyond a reasonable counter argument, it doesn't even come close to flipping the decisions. And if, at that point, it becomes pretty irrefutable. So I could test the parameters and I could get that to go from 18% down to maybe 10%. But to, to do that, I've got to go into such un, unreasonable assumptions. So that what that tells you is that this one's just a slam dunk, right? It, like yeah. there's no argument about it because we can test all of those counter arguments. 
So that's a lot of what we do when we consult with the teams is we, we show those kinds of stress tests. You know, that is just fabulously interesting to me because I have now, I have not heard of models that can be adjusted in that manner situationally. And then, and then adjusted because sometimes you need to, sometimes as you know, from talking to all these teams, Frank is the language at times is not, it doesn't click right away with, with coaches because they're in their own world and they have their own, you know, strange like bubble vernacular in which they exist. And it's almost like when you present it like that, it is so clear because not only are you saying you could literally be up against the most unreasonable presentation of variables that the National Football League could give you at, at this particular moment, and here is the percentage by which it is still unsound for you to make the call that you made, and here is the actual quantifiable loss, and like what you said earlier, you know, you make a few of those mistakes and it adds up to three games in total, and here's the actual quantifiable way that you are hurting this team by making that decision. And I think that is where it starts to click with somebody like Sean McVay. And yeah. I'm not saying he doesn't he doesn't process it before, because he does. He keeps an eye on all of this stuff. But he he wasn't at first, <laughs> let me tell you, because you mentioned the post-game press conference. And he, you know, I was asking him about this because I was, you know, you guys were giving me this data in the game. And I was blown away by the drastic game win chance percentage that was in the red. And, you know, it's something like 18 and a half percent lost on that call. Right. And, and, and it was just statistically extraordinary. And so, you know, you're asking him about it afterward and I asked him about it afterward and, and he was like, it was just the way the momentum of the game was at that time. <laughs> and I wanted to, and I was like, oh no. <laughs> yeah, I know, I know. You know, the other thing that I, I should mention around these when we do the stress tests, and this is where I think there's a little bit of a sometimes flawed thinking is the person that'll create the counter argument sometimes they do a little bit of cherry picking. So the model will allow any assumptions that you want to put in. We can put in historic levels, right? Mm -hmm. um, but once you do that, you, you, that's who you are for the remainder of the game. So you set the simulation accordingly. And I think this is where people get hung up is you'll see situations where they'll say, oh, we couldn't move the ball very well that day. So that's why, even though the analytics said we should have gone for it, we decided to punt the ball. But what they're really saying is we're punting the ball we're going to stop them. We're going to get the ball back. And now all of a sudden, we are going to have an amazing offense. Well, no. I mean, if, if you didn't trust them in this situation, you're probably not trusting them <laughs> for the remainder of the game. So you know, it can be whatever you want, but you've got to be honest about your assumption, right? And that's the part where the model does a very good job of capturing whatever that assumption is. But And you see that a lot. You really do. Like, they forget that, that that they're relying on that offense to come back on the field. And they would be tickled if they got back to a midfield fourth and one on the subsequent possession, by the way. you know. But, but in this case, they're giving it away. So, I mean, I'm not saying that that's not relevant to the specific Rams situation we're talking about, but I do see this mm -hmm. others where teams are trailing and they do this sort of thing. Yeah, and, and I think it is interesting to, to see it quantified in such a, a manner as well because the next week – and I'm I'm looking at my notes right now. And the next week, obviously, they're playing in a deficit and and just kind of throwing what they can out there. And um, on fourth and one at their own 29, 
uh, excuse me, yeah, with a five-point lead, they still went for it, which was not something I think people expected at that point from Sean McVay, considering especially the week prior. Um, but I know that he studies and, and reads all of the things that we put in our, our articles about game win chance, and, and those numbers were stark, and they were drastic the week prior. And he did go for it, and um, what you guys had was it actually – the pre-snap increase in game win chance was 2.9% on that play. And then that success also added another 5.3%, which again, not as drastic, but notable, I yeah, think. That's right. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I just I just pulled that situation up. So yeah, that's a good point. I mean, it, it, it is, um, and th- that's something that we see is th- there, it, there are times when we feel like, wow, analytics are really taking hold in the NFL. You know, this, mm-hmm. this coach is a good decision maker and they're, they're really starting to get it. But then all of a sudden they'll get into a situation and they'll just completely turn on a dime and do something different. Um, so, you know, we hope it's evolving in a way that, that coaches are getting it, getting it more and more. And certainly some more than others are, but it's, it's kind of hard to pin down. Like, you know, if you observed game one and then you go into game two, would you have expected them to do that? I mean, there was, I guess what that was a sit that situation was what six fifty one of the third quarter. So, you know, that was not an obvious thing to do, but it right. was the right call. Um, and you wouldn't have expected that based on what he did in the prior week, like you said. So I, I'm curious, uh, Frank, I'm, I'm looking at right now as we speak, you, you'd mentioned earlier um, how, how, in, in such high regard, you'd held John Harbaugh last year, and and I pulled that up to to look at your um, 2019 coach uh, rankings, and uh, I'd encourage everybody to to do the same on on e, uh, edjsports.com because it's very interesting. The coaches who you had uh, ranked the highest last year, uh, it coincides with a lot of the best teams. When you're talking about Baltimore, number one, Kansas City, uh, number two, you had San Francisco, number four. I mean, these were teams that were all in the mix uh, for the Super Bowl, Green Bay uh, in, in the top 10. And then down at number six, 17, tied for 17th, uh, you had you had Sean McVay. Um, so yeah. does that tell us anything about some of the, the ways that uh, things went for the Rams last year? And I don't, I don't want to put you on the spot here, but if, if there is a, a, a 2020 rankings that, that you could share right now, do you think Sean and the Rams are trending um, in a better, better direction than, than 17th from last year? It's a little early at the moment. We're just kind of putting together our first run at the rankings this year. We need a bit of data to, because it, sure. it really does crystallize throughout the course of the season. So stay tuned on that. We'll be coming out with, I think, the first one in the next week or so. Um, uh, my recollection is that I think he's probably somewhere in the middle of the pack right now. Uh, but but again, I give me a in another week we'll be able to to, to share that and give you an indication of, of how this season's um, coming along. But you know your point on, on Baltimore and Kansas City. I mean, both of those teams have really solid analytics groups. And the thing, and, and this is this was evidence when the Eagles had their run at the Super Bowl too. Um, that you know you can have the best analytics staff, but you've got to really have you know, to do it right, I think you've got to have sort of support down the chain. The head coach has to get it and believe in it, not be afraid of implementing some decisions. You know, in the case of when, you know, the Eagles with their run, you know, I think from the owner to the analyst, the GM, head coach, everybody was on board. You know, if mm-hmm. if Peterson made 
a, you know, a controversial decision, but it was mathematically defensible. Jeff Lurie had his back. Howie Roseman had his back. And I think that's an important factor with the way some of these teams are configured. You know, you can have the best analysts in the world. And I've talked to some of these analysts that sometimes, you know, we'll talk about a decision that was made and it's a head scratcher and they get it, but they're like, yeah, I, you know, I just, it's going to take me some time to get coached to, to buy into this stuff, you know, um, <laughs> but other organizations embrace it more. And I would say what you're seeing are the, the teams that are in the top of those lists that are analytically driven teams, they are really starting to kind of get that sort of buy-in up and down the chain is what you're, is what you're seeing. Frank, in the future, you know, five years down the line, I'm wondering about a couple of maybe trends and, and possibilities that you see happening within teams. Um, even, you know, there was this great story uh, when Philadelphia made their Super Bowl run about, um, you know, having a, a guy who's running sort of statistic, stati- excuse me, statistical data and, and running um, situational probabilities in game and helped sort of lead to some of the decisions that were made to help them go on that run and, and succeed in, in certain times that they did, especially in the, in the Super Bowl. And I'm wondering if you see that as a possibility across the league moving forward, not just what they like to call, you know, game management coaches that help them, you know, have a fall guy if things go wrong, essentially, but actual people who are in the in the headset who have that access. And, and that's the only time I've ever heard of it was in Philadelphia when um, the sort of situational analysis person had access to the headset um, to be able to discuss probabilities and things like that before play calls. I'm wondering if you see that as a possibility down the road. And if I might, when people – the trend now, I think, especially um, on social media and in sort of when coaches like to – when coaches who don't believe so much in incorporating analytics – and I just covered an organization um, in Carolina for the last four years that was not so much on that trend. Um, they like to pull examples of when the analytics were quote-unquote wrong, but a lot of times it was actually the execution that was wrong and not the decision. So – Two-part question here. One, the the future of, of these things being incorporated live into real time and, and games and things like that. And then also how it can be better communicated um, that it's not – even if you make the right decision, you can still have the wrong result. Sure. <laughs> yeah. So you are seeing already now a trend. There are many teams that have an in-game play caller on the headset. Now, one of the things that I would hope would evolve over time is that they will be able to do more processing and simulation in game. So like I mentioned, we provide charts, but ideally what they would really want to be able to do is actually run the model live because, you know, there's so many variables that go into any unique NFL game situation that it's hard to capture them all on a chart. You you, you typically capture things that are close proxies to them that can give guidance. Um, But you are seeing that more and more in terms of you know, the in-game um, uh, decision makers that are helping the coach on the, on the headset. And what a lot of those guys are, are doing now is they like, and this was a perfect example in the case of Philadelphia, they're, they're, they're giving guidance in advance. So it's first down and they might be saying, Hey coach, if, if you get to fourth and three or less, the analytics say this is a go. 
And what that enables them to do is to make better decisions on third down. I think Philly did a really good job of this. There were sometimes in long third down situations, they would run the ball knowing that they didn't necessarily have to pick up all of the third down yardage because it was a viable fourth down go. And they were able to do it in a way where it was very seamless. They didn't have to take a timeout. They knew in advance what they were going to do in that situation. They already kind of had it scripted a little bit. And I think that was an advantage in terms of, you know, throwing the, the defense off a bit. And remind me of your second question again. Sorry. Yeah, pardon me. I just got so excited. Um, so um, in terms of the people who are slow to come along to it and to and not just, um, you know, the people who seem to be the angriest online, but also um, coaches, when coaches sort of cherry pick, pick at times, uh, right. especially in these post-game press conferences and say, well, the analyst, you know, the, I, I, I used analytics on this two-point try and it was wrong. If you could clarify and explain sort of to the, the, the layperson sports fan why you can make the right decision but still have the, the failed outcome because yeah. execution was not what it was, what it should have been. That's right. Yeah. I mean, there's just, look, you can, you know, we all know you can make really good decisions that they're not guaranteed. They they have, mm-hmm. you, know, you know, if I, if we flip a coin and you're giving me two to one odds on a fair coin, you know, on heads, I'm going to take it all day long. I'm going to, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to lose half the time, but I'm going to be very profitable, <laughs> you know? Um, so <laughs> You know, and the example that I like to give, which is the overly simplified one, is, you know, it's the last play of the game. You're on the opponent's two-yard line, um, and you're trailing by uh, two, right? And everybody knows intuitively you kick the field goal there. You're going to win more often than trying to run the ball and or pass the ball into the end zone. But if you kick the field goal and – you know, naturally you're going to, an average NFL team is going to miss that, you know, one or 2% of the time. Um, if they miss, that doesn't mean they made a bad decision. They made a very good decision, but they just had one of the bad results, the one or two in a hundred that was bad. If you, uh, you know, if you run the ball into the end zone, which no one would do, you know, and you're successful, you're going to high five and say, oh, we won the game. This is great. But you made a horrible decision, right? You, you cost yourself close to 50% in win probability, by doing that. And, you know, that's an extreme case. Nobody gets that wrong, but it illustrates the point that good decisions can have bad results and bad decisions can have good results. But the goal is to take the best available information, understand your objective, presumably winning the game. And how does that information point to a decision path that optimizes that? And if you do that more often you know, you will win more games. You know, you get a lot of decisions over the course of the season. It adds up. You know, some teams give up. An average NFL team gives up about three quarters of a game uh, on fourth down decisions alone, according to our analysis over the last several years. The worst teams will give up a game and a half. Um, the best will be down in like the point two, point three range, something like that. Some of that is just, it's opportunistic. I mean, there's just, you know, randomly some teams get themselves in more tight games and so forth where there's more at stake in these decisions. But, um, you know, the reality is you just got to, you just got to make good decisions every time they're presented. And over the course of time, it's going to add up. Sometimes it's going to be good. Sometimes it's going to be bad. You know, it's, that's, that's the way life works. 
Well, this has just been fantastic to, to really get an insight into some of these uh, decisions. And I would encourage uh, all of our listeners, Rams fans, NFL fans everywhere um, to go, uh, first of all, to your website, edgesportsedjsports.com. You can get a lot more information about all of this. I love my, my favorite feature is a little thing called Things You Didn't Notice. And it's it's just a great uh, three uh, three big moments in around the NFL um, every week where uh, that made a difference, a, a decision or a play that really kind of turned the tide um, in, a, in a statistical and a GWC uh, sense. But not just about the NFL, there's so much else on here. Again, covering every sport, even uh, European soccer. You can get breakdowns into win probabilities, uh, NBA, NHL, across the board. So much there. You can get a free trial and, and check it out. So definitely encourage everybody to do that. You can learn so much about the game and about these decisions. Uh, so, so thanks so much for being with us and hope you'll uh, join us again. Thank you very much. I, I enjoyed being here. Pleasure. Once again, thank you so much to both of our guests, Aaron Schatz of Football Outsiders and Frank Frigo of Edge Sports for being on with us for this major bulk load episode of the 11 Personnel Podcast. We hope it is tiding you over in your bye week. We hope you enjoy your Sunday. We'll be back again, of course, after the bye with further analysis. We're going to get a little bit into some of the granular details of the Rams at the about the midseason point and, and look ahead at what's to come. Obviously, things get Real, real interesting here coming up down the stretch. Rich, I think there's something really exciting to announce uh, in the in the land of my absolute favorite thing in the world. There is, Jordan. We appreciate all of our subscribers to The Athletic. And uh, Jordan mentioned earlier in the episode the great comments. And it really is gratifying to, to see people discussing uh, things at a higher level. So thank you to all of you who who have signed up. And I know how much you appreciate and enjoy Jordan's work. And, and we love having you. And for those who are maybe on the fence, maybe don't know whether or not they want to join The Athletic or not, we have Jordan's absolute favorite thing in the world, other than her dog, <laughs> Tucker, which is a great discount. So for just $1 a week, you can sign up for The Athletic. And not only do you get all of Jordan's great coverage, you get coverage from every professional team, uh, NFL, NBA, NHL, Major League Baseball, international soccer, whatever you want. It's all there. It's more than you can read. I can guarantee you all the great coverage. So please go to theathletic.com slash 11 personnel and you can get that awesome deal just $1 per week. We really appreciate it. Guys, thank you so much for subscribing and for following. And as always, go to the 11 Personnel podcast, also on iTunes. Leave us a five-star review. We are a little biased. We hope that you do leave a five-star review. And leave us some comments because we read everything. Rich and I screenshot everything and send it to each other. We really, really enjoy interacting with you guys. And thanks again for tuning in. 